You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid NAM is a new mutual aid group of organised volunteers. We're here, we're queer and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, Find us on QueerAidMelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook, COVID-19 Queer Aid Nam Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter. First, I'd like to give an acknowledgement of country. We're broadcasting from the lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples. First Nations sovereignty was never ceded. Colonization and genocide are ongoing across this continent. And so is the resistance of First Nations people. So, in terms of today's show, we're going to be looking at stories from people inside prisons and then looking a bit at housing justice. These are both examples of how the pandemic has intensified already existing inequalities and oppression and privilege. Stay at home. What does that mean for people without housing or in precarious housing? How can we organise against the unequal power given to landlords? And what about people inside prison during the pandemic, including many queer and trans folks? How has the general lack of safety and state violence in prisons affected and made worse during the pandemic? What are people inside prison stories of injustice in the system? We hear from two speakers from a webinar, Stories from Inside Prison, hosted by the Abolition and Transformative Justice Centre in late July. With special thanks to Miranda Gibson for facilitating the conversation. Damien Linian is a former prisoner and an author and freelance journalist who has spoken out about the treatment of incarcerated people. He is currently writing an autobiography and lobbying for better educational programs and mental health support for prisoners and involuntary mental health patients. Ashley Chapman is 26 years old, has spent five years incarcerated and has autism spectrum disorder. Ashley focused on LGBTIQ plus rights and support whilst inside and became the first female in the history of female corrections to become an LGBTIQ rep and advocate. She is passionate about disability justice and the rights of LGBTIQ 
plus people in prisons. We hear first from Miranda Gibson facilitating the conversation. To get started, maybe we'll go to Damien first. And if you just wanted to introduce yourself and to uh, let us know why this, um, this issue is an important issue for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, hi, everyone. I'm Damien. I'm uh, 34. I've um, just finished a master's degree uh, last month. Um, ironically, one I wanted to start in prison, but I couldn't. And we'll probably get into that uh, about why. But um, during that, I work as a um, freelance writer and artist. I um, actually wrote a novel in prison, which came out late last year. And um, basically, um, oh, yeah, I got arrested for the first time at 29 and um, went into prison several months later. And it was just a really eye-opening experience for me. Um, like, you know, I definitely didn't have a sheltered upbringing, but I... Um, put it this way, I, I didn't even know there were people in Australia who my age who don't know how to read. And uh, yeah, but when I went into prison, I was surrounded by them. I um, uh, had no idea about like the lack of resources um, and what's affecting inmates. And um, basically, I just realized that, uh, yeah, this, this system's broken. And the, 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 um, the ironic, thing, ironic thing is that um, the people that work in there know that it's broken as well. And I'll probably get into that a bit. But um, yeah, I've you know, like be the change you want to see in the world. And I just decided that I was going to um, get involved with groups and and, um, activists once I got out. And I got out in September 2016 and I've been kind of irregularly, but um, uh, involved in quite a few programs and um, uh, campaigns for prisoners' rights and uh, involuntary mental health patients as well. And, um, yeah, I guess that's what brought me here today. Uh, Ashley Chapman, (laughs) Um, 26. Um, I'm originally from Queensland, moved down to Victoria after um, some family violence and um, some trauma as well um, and a loss. Um, I first became incarcerated at 20. Um, I grew up in prison, so 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, Um, and just got out for my 25th, so that's exciting. I came in, um, I'm very well educated, you could say. So um, I came in on the back foot. Um, I was around people who did illicit substances and um, drank quite a lot of alcohol. Um, So on those two reasons, I was already on the back foot. Then I realised because of my ASD, um, I was socially impaired, as I used to say, Um, So I didn't win any favours at all straight away. Um, I actually put a target on my back pretty quickly. Um, But I soon learned I can still be myself. Um, It took a while um, and I started noticing I was being treated differently. Some officers would treat me like I was a child um, and, you know, would even ask if I brushed my teeth today. Um, And other officers would treat me like very badly. Um, so I saw that I didn't want to be treated any other, any way differently than everyone else. So I started looking at that and, um, I started focusing on that. I made it my mission. Um, so this is, this is quite close to me as well because, um, there's a lot of other ways that, um, I could have been punished for my crime than being sent to prison for five years for the first time I ever broke the law. Um, 
so this is actually quite close to my heart. Um, so hopefully this seminar can help make things move forward, basically. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am, Crewing Theatre. Hearing extracts from a conversation, stories from inside prison between facilitator Miranda Gibson and author Damien Lenan and LGBTIQ plus and disability justice advocate Ashley Chapman. We hear the second question from Miranda. Um, and I was wondering if you could t- both talk about uh, the ways in which prisons cause harm to individuals and also to communities. So, um, Damien, did you want to answer first? Yeah, sure. Um, no, I really identified with what you said at the end there, Ashley, um, that uh, there's so many other ways I could have uh, we could have been punished rather than sent to prison. And um, for me, I was actually um, assessed for what's called an intensive corrections order. Uh, I'm not sure if it's different in other states, but in New South Wales, that's basically, uh, if you don't know, that's one step before going to prison. It's between a suspended sentence and going to prison. It's basically a community program with like rehab and volunteering and stuff like that. And um, I have autism as well. And I was denied um, the intensive corrections order because um my assessment said I needed regular counselling with a psychologist who specialised in autism and the town I was living in uh, didn't have one of those. And so I was told I'd have to relocate to either Sydney or Newcastle and the uh, the killer was that I, um, I had to pay for the therapy myself. They wanted me to uh, see someone every two weeks and I'd already used up my 10 subsidised you know, mental health care program um, uh, package uh, getting therapy while I was on bail. I kind of shafted myself by trying to, you know, better myself. And um, yeah, I um, they said there was no funding for that, and I was like, well, if I'm, I'm going to move to Sydney, I'm going to have to quit my job. And um, they said, well, uh, you know, if um, I'm like, what what happens if I can't um, complete? If I can't afford to go to therapy? And they said. Um, well, unfortunately, we'd have to issue a report saying you've violated the terms of your intensive corrections order and that'll uh, almost certainly result in you being sent to prison. And I was like, well, to hell with your intensive corrections order. It sounds less stressful to go to jail and it probably was um, having been in there now. But um, the sad thing was that uh, my therapy was going to cost about $20,000 and um I just thought it was really ironic that uh, they didn't have $20,000 funding for me to get therapy, but they did have, um, it costs $109,000 a year uh, to keep someone in prison in Australia. And um, I pointed that out to my uh, parole uh, parole and probation and they were like, well, look, you know, we, we get it. It doesn't make any sense, but, you know, that money comes from different pools and there's just, there's no funding for you to get therapy. And yeah, it's just, it boggles the mind really. Like I, um, the prison, uh, the government didn't have the money for me to get therapy, but they did have the money to put me in prison where I, you know, my first cellmate was actually quite a nice guy, but he was, you know, in for manufacturing firearms and, you know, and, you know, I didn't get any therapy in jail, but now I know someone who sells machine guns and, you know, that that's quite possibly not conducive to (laughs) uh, me getting better, but uh, like, um, uh, yeah, so there's just... uh, you think about how much money that is, $109,000 a year. It'd literally be cheaper to hire a full-time support worker, even two full-time support workers to, you know, um, to work on each, each person, a, each, uh, like, offender. 
And uh, but uh, instead, I got sent into prison, and I had a mandatory appointment with the um, prison psychologist. And I said to her, "Look, you know, I, I realized I had some issues while I was uh, before I got arrested, actually, and I started seeing a therapist. Hence, why I used up my um, ten free mental health care sessions." And I told her, "I'm like, look, I, I, I really think I'd get better if I, um, if I kept having therapy in prison." And she kind of smiled sadly, and she said something I'll never forget, and that was, um, she "said Damien, uh, everybody in here would benefit from therapy. Uh, unfortunately, there's no funding for that." And she's like, "My job's just to assess whether people are suicidal, dangerous, or at risk of escape." And you know, the good news is, I think uh, you're none of the above. And I'm. But yeah, there's no therapy. Um, I was assessed at a low to medium risk of reoffending, which also meant I was ineligible for rehabilitation. Um, you had to be assessed as medium to high risk for that. So I, yeah, went in there. There's no therapy. There's no rehabilitation. And in New South Wales, we're a bit unique because, um, well, you can't uh, get c- computer access. I've been told in uh, other states you can get a laptop or access to a computer if you're studying, but um, you still can't in New South Wales. So I wanted to. I was like, um, I've always been the kind of person who wants to make the most of a situation, and I was like, well, if I'm going to prison, I'll go back to uni and I'll study. I already had an undergraduate degree, and uh, but yeah, I couldn't couldn't do that master's degree I wanted to do. I couldn't do anything really because there was no computer access. So. Um, yeah, went in there, yeah, no no therapy, no education, no rehabilitation, and I'm surrounded by uh, some, you know, very interesting and troubled and people dealing with, you know, heavy trauma, and yeah, um, it was on, when I was getting assessed for that intensive corrections order, probation actually, um, I said to probation, I'm like, look, I, I really don't think I'm going to get better in prison, and my officer said to me, she, she was like, Damien, nobody gets better in prison. And, uh, I mean, that's kind of sums up why I'm campaigning because, I mean, even the people working the system know that it doesn't work. Um, uh, yeah, well, it depends what your end goal is really, but, I mean, no, nobody comes out better than when they went in. Uh, the ones that do kind of turn their lives around a bit, they've already made that decision before they went in generally in, in my experience. So it's just completely counterproductive, like... Um, you look at uh, the statistics and the, the biggest um, uh, factor for being sent to prison is actually if you've already been. Um, you're going to get stuck in that in that cycle where you get out and it's harder to find work and, and so on and so forth. And I'm sure most of you already know all these kind of things. But, uh, yeah, it's just completely counterproductive to, um, you know, reintegrating into society. You're living in this environment where... If you've ever thought there's not quite enough toxic masculinity in society, um, try going to prison. There's a, there's a lot more there. It's this environment where if you're not willing to fight at a drop of a hat, you're perceived as being weak. And then you'll get targeted by, you know, the, the, the thugs in there, more or less. And then you get out. And all of a sudden, that skill you've built up, which is willing to punch on at any minute uh, to protect yourself, that, that, that's not really a skill that's valued in society. So basically, uh, you learn how to adapt in prison, and then when you get out, out you have to try and unlearn that because uh, everything that's you've been subjected to um, isn't conducive to you rehabilitating it at all. Like, prison is basically rehabilitation, and if you try really hard, in my experience, you can break even, but you can't really get better. And uh, yeah, so that, I think that's my long way of winded way of answering that question. And, uh, 
I pass on to you, Ashley. <laughs> it's it is it is a long winded question answer, isn't it, Damien? Um, it's it's very difficult to sort of um, explain everything. So I'm just going to take it from uh, my personal experience. Um, maybe a little bit of factual information in there too. Um, Basically, one of the things is the difference between unequal power relations and also discrimination. Um, I think that's quite big for everybody, no matter the colour of your skin or disability or mental health. Um, that, that There's a massive unequal power um, between prison officers, staff, and also the prisoners themselves, um, the people themselves. Um, so that's a major one um, for me. Um, it does make it a bit difficult um, having mental health, a disability, um, and also coming from family violence background as well. Um, it makes it quite difficult to function. <laughs> um, and as you might know, Damien, with also with um, having ASD, it's overstimulated. So there's lots of loud noises. Um, there's lots of things you have to touch and, and to see as well. So it to that makes it quite difficult having um, a disability. Um, but also with the mental health on top of it as well, coming into the prison, um, it does make it a bit difficult to advocate for yourself um, if you're having a bad day or um, if you just generally have difficulty speaking with your peers but also the officers as well. Um, it can make it difficult to ask for something that we need or want. Mm -hmm. um, that is, that is one of the major issues, um, especially if you have uh, mental health or you've been through family violence as well. Um, a lot of different people um, have difficulties talking to someone of the opposite sex or the same sex. So if you have a male officer and you need to ask a question, it does, it does make it a bit difficult. Um, and community-wise, it makes it a bit difficult as well because I don't know how many times our prison was on um, the news for... Uh, for instance, a brand new um, uh, mental health unit um, and also a reintegration unit as well. They made it sound like it was going to be all over the media. It was going to be this new thing for anyone who has any type of disabilities, mental health, um, and it's the complete opposite. So the community's getting the wrong information. Um, for instance, there's um, two uh, quiet rooms that are fully decked out, fully soundproof. Um, they spent thousands of dollars on this. The media loved it. Media lapped it up. Um, they're being fed the wrong information. These soundproof rooms have never been used. They are completely soundproof. So if somebody's in there and they're unwell um, and they can't even get out, there's no intercom, there's no way to get anybody's attention. You kind of just have to stand at the little window trying to get their attention. So in, in theory they try to do the right thing and they do try to implement things um, for our prison in particular, though it's just, it's not executed correctly. And I think that's where the community comes into it because they're being fed lots of information that is absolutely incorrect. So it makes it a bit difficult for communities to get together when, when it's difficult because if we, we find it difficult to speak out and we can get in quite a lot of trouble 
and to speak out about different things. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am, Kering the Air, hearing extracts from a conversation, stories from inside prison between facilitator Miranda Gibson and author Damien Lenan and LGBTIQ plus and disability justice advocate Ashley Chapman. We hear the second question from Miranda. Um, brings us to our next question, which is thinking about the current situation of the COVID pandemic um, and how this relates to people who are incarcerated at the moment, the health risks um, and um, also the kinds of uh, restrictions we've seen uh, placed on people um, around the pandemic and the impact that that's having on people as well. So, um, yeah, if the speakers can talk about what you think the risks are around COVID in prisons and also about what we can actually do to support people who are incarcerated um, at this time. So, um, yeah, did you want to speak to that first, uh, Damien? Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, basically, this pandemic's just exacerbating the um, existing issues in prison, which is um, like over- overcrowding and uh, and the lack of healthcare. Um, really, like uh, I when I went in, um, that was the end of 2015, and um, it was all in the news um, before I went in. Like we were suffering from a really bad overcrowding situation in New South Wales, and um, yeah, I went into a two man cell. I started on remand, and I. Um, we were on lockdown for a couple of days because we had staff shortages and then they eventually opened our cell door and um, I thought we were, get, they, we were getting let out. But um, what they were doing was they were pushing a third man into our two-man cell and he was on a mattress on the floor. Like I literally couldn't get out of my bunk bed without stepping on his mattress. And, and, and I mean, this is the kind of overcrowding we have in there like that you can't social distance in prison so i mean that that open letter went out um quite a while ago now about um signed by over 300 you know academics and healthcare professionals about how um yeah when COVID gets into prisons it's just going to spread like wildfire when like when i was in um over winter like everybody got the flu which wasn't, you know, it's the flu, like, you know, let's see, it wasn't the world's biggest deal, but obviously COVID's a lot worse than the flu. And so that there's no social distancing in there. Um, as Michaela was leading to, that the healthcare is terrible. Like, and, and just even, not even like, you know, um, well, like serious issues, like even like little stuff, like I, I got a toothache like 11 weeks before I got released and I went to see the nurse uh, about that and she's like look there's Damon there's no point in me putting you down to see the dentist because the waiting list for the dentist is like you know six months and I'm like well yeah isn't that magical but um like uh, even little things like the, the waiting list to see a doctor was um so, yeah weeks uh nurses wouldn't take you that seriously um uh, I had a guy at, uh, I was at Glennon's Correctional which is a constructions uh like a lumberyard and we had a guy drop something on his foot and he went to the nurse's office and um, complained and she just took a look at it and said, like, doesn't look, you know, um, looks okay to me, go back to work and, you know, didn't x-ray or him or nothing and um, just, yeah, like, it's, um, the system kind of assumes you're lying by default. So, like, you know, the um, social distancing, there's the really inadequate healthcare, like the healthcare in there is already, you know, um, it's, it's, I was going to say it's stretched to breaking point, but it's already been broken for years. And now this you know, pandemic is going to make it a lot worse. But um, also what inmates have access to, like if you saw the last webinar, um, I think it was Debbie was talking about the like complete lack of soap in there. But more importantly, in New South Wales, we get 50, the allowance you get is about $15 a week. And you're expected to buy certain toiletries with that. And, you know, if, if you 
want to keep in touch with family, like, you know, a six-minute phone call in New South Wales will cost you $2.20. And um, if you only get $15 a week, then, you know, uh, how are you expected to... Because visits are um, shut down now. Um, yeah, like, expected to keep in touch with your family, preserve your mental health, um, buy more food for yourself because they don't feed you enough, and, and also, you know, buy your own soap on, on $15. And it's just ridiculous, really. Um and uh, yeah, and, and as the open letter said, the, the big, the really big risk with this is that COVID's going to get into prisons. It's going to breed like wildfire in there, and then the staff who, you know, one staff member is going to bring it in, and then all the staff are going to take it back out. It's it's just it's going to act as a breeding ground to spread back to the community. And yeah, I just um, can't. Well, I, I suppose I can understand, unfortunately, why, but uh, it's just. Um, in fact, well, why, why the government's passed these laws that, that to allow them to release people, but they haven't taken advantage of them at all yet. Yes, yeah, so um, I'm up here in Victoria or down here in Victoria. Um, I was incarcerated during this pandemic. Uh, the issue for Victorian, as I don't know if you all know, there are quite a lot of cases in the men's system at the moment um, and one located next to the Dangerous Frost Centre, which is where I was incarcerated for the five years. The So when this pandemic happened, obviously in, in Victoria we have TVs, um, so we saw this unfolding. The first thing we wanted to gain access to was sanitizer, um, multi-purpose spray, stuff like that, sponges. Unfortunately, in, if you lived in an open cottage, you were allowed two or three chuck swipes, for example. Um, there's no sanitizer um, at all. Um, so that made it quite difficult to protect yourself and also to protect others. We have quite a lot of elderly people at Danefellis Frost Centre. Um, so it does make it a bit difficult. And as you all know, it is very difficult for everyone with this coronavirus. But if you do have underlying symptoms, it can make it a bit difficult. And as Michaela and Damien both said, the medical system is really bad and also here in Victoria as well. Um, there's been some horror stories as well. Um, uh, an Aboriginal woman complained of having a really bad stomach ache for years. Um, I'm talking maybe three or four years. Um, and they just put it down to her alcohol um, use before she was incarcerated, stuff like that. It, it turns out um, she had unfortunately had stomach cancer and only recently passed away. So it does make it a bit difficult. The, the doctors and the nurses are A, not qualified enough um, or overworked and also understaffed. Um, one nurse is turning up to a medical emergency. Um, it does make it quite difficult. It's sad to know that all over Australia, all, all prisons are like this. Um, and to not have access to basic sanitizer, um, masks, even gloves. Um, I mean, if you were to take a box of gloves to your room um, to protect yourself and to protect others, it's, it's contraband. Um, you would get in trouble. So even asking the officers for equipment like that, when they have it, they have it at their staff desk, they have quite a few Um in one particular unit, they had four bottles. And if you tried to use one, you're not allowed to. Um, it does make it difficult with the coronavirus because obviously, as we know, social distancing, using sanitizer, stuff like that. 
you can't do that in prisons. Um, they did try to move everyone out if you were in a double room. Um, you can potentially live in a unit. There's three units that can have 15 people in it. So these three units have all 15 in them. Um, and if coronavirus was to get in, and it already is in the Victorian prisons, but to get into the female system, because we only have that one particular prison, we do have a minimum security. But Dame Phyllis Frost Centre is overcrowded. Um, it is understaffed. Um, and it's just easier for them to lock you in your unit or your cell than it is to deal with anything. We had one particular person um, quite unwell. So they located everyone from that particular unit, shoved them all in the unit. Um, they were buzzing up for and on the intercom, intercom for what I would think is about seven hours nearly. And I was, I was living next door um, and no help. The nurses are coming. They'll come when, when they can. Um, I happened to be walking behind two particular nurses with an officer being escorted to them to do the tests. And I overheard them say, we don't know what we're doing. They had no PPE on um, and they walked in, no PPE at all, walked in and said, oh, I don't think you have coronavirus. Um, at that point, that was the start of the coronavirus pandemic. So we didn't know a lot about it at all. So basically, because the staff are either undertrained or overworked or just downright just don't care, and unfortunately that is the case with some, it makes it difficult because it's going to be transferred. You have support staff coming in um, rare now that the pandemic, they're all, most of them are video. Um, but you have the officers coming in as well. Um, there's no temperature checks. There's no nothing at the, at, the, at the gate when they walk in. You have a lot of construction going on at the moment um, with the Danefellish Frost Centre. So you have a lot of those um, tradies coming in as well. It's just... There's no system in place for this, even though we've been going through this for months now. Nothing's being done about it, and that's the dangerous part, is no government's taking control, no... The general manager, for instance, um, it's literally like she's been on holiday with the Prime Minister in Hawaii, for Christ's sake. So um, it makes it a bit difficult when even the general manager... Um, you don't see her. I expected her to be walking around with a mask on going, right, you do this, you do that. And that's what should happen, um, especially in a prison system. There's a giant wall or a giant fence or whatever you guys got around your prison. But it's basically people are going to start dying and people already are, um, whether it's exaggerate, uh, ex wrong word, sorry, whether it's, it's, it's made worse by this pandemic and the previous medical conditions that you have, it's going to get very dangerous. Um, and are we even going to hear about it? And that's the issue. We've had four deaths in custody at Dane Phyllis Frost Centre. And I can tell you now, the last one we heard was the um, corrections officer. Um, there was a recent um, death of a Curry woman. We did hear about that a little bit. Um, she had been in her cell for hours, um, screaming out for pain. Other people had been pressing their buttons, um, requesting um, assistance for this for this woman and they put it down to oh it's just she's only just come in she's coming off drugs um, and it actually turns out that the medical system had given her the wrong drug on top of what she'd already taken out in the community so basically feeding someone full of medication is exactly what they do it's 
let's give you some medication, um, goodbye. Um, and the same with same with DPFC as well. Getting a getting assistance medically for anything is quite difficult. Um, I was electrocuted, um, partly my fault, but um, there was equipment that should never have been placed there and it was quite dangerous. Um, they were like, no, let's just wait a little bit. Um, let's not take you to the medical department because then they would have to, then WorkSafe would come in and investigate. So it's basically when something does happen, is the right authorities going to be notified? And that's the issue because I bet you a million dollars, no. And that's that's the difficult part about this is because it's a broken system and even if the community does want to help, they're not being fed the right information. Um, I've spoken to many people who think it's like Wentworth <laughs> mm. um, that have these idealistic views on our prison systems and ex especially DPFC. DPFC is very big with social media, lots of different videos. Um, it's all a load of, yeah, <laughs> it's not true. And that's the issue is that's what needs to change. There needs to be more forums like this, more seminars like this to tell the truth and people not afraid to tell the truth. And that's where it becomes difficult because we're always going to cop flack, especially as ex-prisoners as well, is because are they lying? Are they telling the truth? Is what they're saying is true? Because us up against corrections is is difficult. Um, and I would say we would cop flack for this. We would There would be many flack for this. Look what happens with the Black Lives Matter protests. They, let's just go in and let's just arrest them all and throw them all in prison. Um, let's not hear what they have to say and, you know, adapt and change and develop a new system. Um, and that's the issue is corrections needs to change. It needs to literally be flipped inside out, upside down and just changed. And that is the only way this is going to change. And that's, that's the issue is we have a big, big road ahead of us, but you know, doing seminars like this and, and listening to the people who have been through it or their family has been through it, um, it makes a difference because what is being said and what actually is being done is completely different. And, you know, that, that, that makes it difficult. But, yeah. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am, Kering the Air. You've been listening to extracts from our conversations, stories from inside prison between facilitator Miranda Gibson and author Damien Lenan and LGBTIQ plus disability justice advocate Ashley Chapman. The webinar from late July was hosted by the Abolition and Transformative Justice Centre. I'll provide a link in the show notes to more from that event if you're interested in listening to the rest of it. Next up, we have some music, Better Things by the wonderful Kihan and Grand Ideas by the magnificent Alice Skye.
You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's voice of dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Sky with Grand Ideas, and before that was Kion with Better Things. You're listening to Queering the Air and 3CR Community Radio, 855am, on your AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au, online, and podcasted. We hear from Irene Salidas Noyce from the Renters and Housing Union Victoria. I spoke to Irene for the other 3CR show I'm involved in, Women on the Line, at the end of July. So the context here is a little dated, but the context of organising people in precarious housing and uneven power between 
Renters and landlords and the violence of houselessness, while hundreds of buildings sit empty, is still ever-present. Uh, could you introduce yourself a bit for listeners? Sure. My name's Arini, and uh, I've been organising with the Renters and Housing Union since the rent strike. Um, I'm a member of the IWW and um, the United Workers Union, and um, yeah, I'm a cleaner with Red Gum. And I've lost significant work since the pandemic hit. Thanks for that. Um, in terms of the Renters and Housing Union Victoria, um, how did that come about in terms of its formation? At the start of the crisis uh, in March, um, there was a call to uh, rent strike and a pledge to withhold rental payments and mortgage payments for the length of the pandemic. And, um, yeah, I guess through through that rent strike that was both national and international, lots of renters in Victoria, particularly in the northern suburbs, started to organise together and um, voted to unionise our efforts in May. Um, so we held votes in each region across the state, but mainly in, like, central Melbourne areas um, and have been pushing to extend and amend um, the eviction moratorium and the legislation at the moment and um, basically with a longer aim to sort of flip the balance of power um, that's much needed for renters against landlords and agents. Mm. So what were some of the learnings you got from the initial rent strike, so-called a stop paying rent to landlords, and some of the challenges you faced that led you to forming the union? Yeah, there were quite a few challenges. I think there were some huge positives in seeing the issue of rent and hardship um, so exposed and so, like, in the spotlight. Um, so the positives that came out of that was were, were really huge and felt quite widely. Um, I think, you know, we had, like, over 15,000 people commit to withholding payments um, within the first couple of weeks of the pledge going out. And some of the issues we started to see um, was once the federal government announced the moratorium, it became state legislation's responsibility to actually enact measures. Um, so we kind of started to see a bit of a divide um, happening from government to each particular state. And so renters were affected in different ways and with different legislation. But also it meant that um, renters who were striking in solidarity were, were unable to, like, feel confident in continuing to strike with those who couldn't afford to pay, um, which was, yeah, a pretty huge challenge to the broad strike itself. Mm. So in terms of the Renters and Housing Union, um, what are some of, so could you talk further about some more of the demands that you're talking about putting forward and organising around? Yeah, I mean, the demands we have currently are somewhat essentially the same as they were during the strike. Um, we never saw a full rent amnesty enacted, um, either in Victoria or nationally. So we're still calling for rental amnesty um, 
particularly for people in hardship, which is just a growing, growing number. Um, and, you know, that's a huge reason we're seeing a second wave um, of cases, particularly in Victoria, because people are still having to go to work in order to make rent. So our demands uh, are still for a rent amnesty and um, an extension and further amendment to the eviction moratorium um, for at least 12 months in order to properly research the um, effects and impacts that um, evictions would have on people, particularly in low incomes and, and yeah, insecure work. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> also with the legislation, um, the Victorian government posed this idea that partnerships in good faith could be established between renters and landlords, which, you know, we still believe is laughable. Mm. In terms of, yeah, those needs you're seeing about people who have lost their income and don't have support, um, what are you seeing? Could you talk further about the limitations around the Victorian government's pandemic measures and how they're leaving so many renters behind? Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot um, a lot of the measures that the Victorian government have made in regards to COVID-19 have been of a focus on um, kind of policing our way through the pandemic. And it's more than just like, you know, the carrot on the stick. It's essentially just a stick. And for a lot of people in low income and precarity who are like very close to homelessness, uh, currently or are at very close risk to homelessness due to like financial inability to afford rent. Um, the government's, yeah, basically put it, put the pressure on them to try and get what they need currently. And I think agents are exploiting that um, because those who've tried to negotiate reductions are now facing like, insurmountable debt that's been deferred instead of reduced um, and, you know, retaliation from landlords by claiming against the bond and um, charging for excessive fees that are not maintenance, they're actually renovations. Like, for example, someone who has been charged a huge fee for replacing the varnish on all of the floorboards in their house Um and that person successfully negotiated the small reduction. So there's some issues there that I think um, the government may have not considered in writing the legislation they have. But further, it's also an issue for low-income um, demographics in general when it comes to the pandemic because the issues around work and needing to um, afford rent has like put so many more people at risk to contracting corona and what the government's measures have been to respond to that is to make further stick measures and police them um, rather than offer preventative incentives to people Mm. yeah and yeah to pick up the policing the pandemic point we saw the victorian andrews alp government turn public housing into a form of detention earlier in the month um at this and on the 28th of july they have released a media release saying they're supporting houseless people 
with the homelessness to home package. Mm. How how would you think about these two things, and does how does that look on the ground in terms of how things are playing out with the Andrews government? Yeah, it's it's a pretty interesting thing to see currently. I think the housing lockdown and the government's irresponsible um, response to that um, was incredibly dangerous and um yeah absolutely in car- it, it was carceral and you know Rahu st- stood by uh the residents in lockdown and their demands and helped with coordinating much needed like essential items and stuff during that period i think you know to talk about public housing and the like general neglect of that by the government is a long story and it predates 2017, but it does have ties as far back as that in terms of it stopping funding public housing and instead funneling money into privatised versions of what's called social housing. Um, and I think, yeah, the issue of the of the lockdown and how much that was just a, an incredibly lacking response um, is yeah, indicative of how much they've neglected public housing and residents that live in public housing for a long time. I think, you know, by offering a small amount of money to both public and social housing in this recent statement is an attempt to address that superficially. I asked Sayrini if landlords are still evicting people during the so-called eviction moratorium. So a complex issue in terms of trying to document or like give any stats whatsoever about just how many people have been left out of that moratorium Um, because not only are there particular sections where people can still like landlords can still evict tenants on certain grounds um, that is being exploited more recently but we're also like seeing people who were evicted illegally in informal tenancies, particularly with like international students and temporary visa holders um, that basically left en masse in April, whether they were like physically pushed out or like extremely threatened um, by their agent or landlord. And it's really difficult to measure just how much of an impact um, that first wave had on so many people without the moratorium or with the moratorium. How could listeners uh, follow the Renters and Housing Union Victoria or get involved? Well, we've recently established our website, which is really exciting. Um, You can head to rahu.org.au, which is rahu.org.au, and sign up um, if you're a member, if you're a renter or someone living in any kind of precarious housing, including like squatters, um, and, you know, people in homelessness as well, sleeping rough um, or in like share houses or couch surfing. Um, anyone who rents is, is like totally eligible to become a member and help organise with us. We also have Facebook um, at Renters and Housing Union and our Twitter is Rahu or Ra Union, I guess. <laughs> I'm not sure how to say that, but R-A-H-U Union. <laughs> okay, Great. Thanks so much for joining me. You are listening to Irene Salidas-Nice from the Renters and Housing Union Victoria. I spoke to Irene in late July and we went on the line. Definitely hit up the Renters and Housing Union. 
You're tuned into Coringia on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. And that's all we've got time for this week. Tune in next week on Sunday at 3pm. Or catch us on the podcast. Uh, and to end the show, I hope we can keep on supporting each other during these wickedly isolating pandemic times. Um, shout out to everyone supporting people in their networks. Care work is revolutionary. I'd also like to draw listeners' attention again to fundraisers I'll put in the show notes. First Nations COVID-19 Vic Blackfellow Mutual Aid Fundraiser, the Rise Refugee Survivors and Ex-Detainees Fundraiser. They're now looking for a food truck to do deliveries. Scarlet Alliance, distributing funds to sex workers, many without income support. And Irola Impro Shop, which I have some involvement in doing mutual aid food boxes. And if you'd like to write to LGBTIQ plus people inside prison, there's a letter writing group that has events advertised through the IRL info shop social media. I'll put a link in the show notes. You can contact Queering the Air on Facebook, Twitter, or at queeringthea at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Next up is Salam Radio Show. Here's Wokeworks by Salma Flam. Language warning for the next two minutes. I'm so sick of these woke blokes living their woke lives, fucking their woke girls, not like me. You're not like me. He's like, kill the boy down the road who hurt the girl real bad. Unless he is my friend or plays in my favorite band. He says, change the day, you should be grateful You're only staring the pie Babe, there's only so much I can do And your engine's gotta stop But I don't want to let it go If I do, no one will know How it feels to be alone And I just want it to stop I'm so sick of these woke blokes Living their woke lives Fucking their woke girls Not like me you're not like me I'm so sick of these woke blokes Living their woke lives Fucking their woke girls Not like me You're not like me He does yogurt in the morning And cocoa afternoon He wants to take me to Bali Get me drunk on the full moon His friends all start to panic When me to make the news But I don't want to let it go If I do, no one will know How it feels to be alone And I just want it to stop I'm so sick of these woke blokes Living their woke lives Fucking their woke girls Not like me You're not like me I'm so sick of these woke blokes Living their woke lives Fucking their woke girls Not like me you're not like me I'm so sick of these woke blokes Living their woke lives Fucking their woke girls Not like me You're not like me I'm so sick of these woke blokes Living their woke lives Fucking their woke girls Not like me You're not like me You're not like me
Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.